good morning. It's good to see each one out on this Lord's Day. It's good to be back with you after being gone last weekend. I uh, appreciate you all allowing us to be gone. It was kind of an emergency last minute thing. There was a, a death of a dear friend of the family, and we went back to Kentucky for that funeral. Um, had a good Bible class this morning, uh, but we got to talk about all the things preachers do wrong. And so I went back after the lesson, and I asked Jack or John or David if any of them wanted to preach today instead of me. <laughs> I'm kind of reconsidering the stuff that I want to talk about, so now we'll see how it goes. It's good to be able to study God's Word together, to hopefully grow in the faith and be encouraged and, and exhorted and maybe even admonished in just a little bit. I, I want to think about something this morning if we can, or, or at least try to. There seems to be a theme throughout the Bible, but it's not necessarily one that we focus on all that much, and, and that is a theme of, of celebration. As we go through the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word rejoice shows up an awful lot. With joy shows up an awful lot. There's celebrations. When you look at the law of Moses, connected with the tithe, connected with the Passover, connected with the harvest, several times a year there are feasts that are really designed to be a time of celebration and rejoicing before God. We were just studying the past couple of weeks on Wednesday nights, uh, looking at uh, 2 Samuel, and we were talking recently about David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back up to Jerusalem. And, and when you look in the book of 1 Chronicles in chapter 15, and it describes the way they did that as they brought that in to Jerusalem, I just want to notice uh, the joy and the celebration and the rejoicing that accompanies that. Starting in about verse 12, David had summoned the Levites. In verse 12, it says, He said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded, according to the word of God. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers, who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. So the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel, and of his brothers Asaph, who, when you read the Psalms, there's lots of Psalms written by Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and of the sons of Merari, their brothers, Ethan, the son of Keshiah, and several others are named. And all of them, as you go down to about verse 24, are blowing trumpets before the ark of God. Verse 25, so David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing and because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as were also all the Levites who were carrying the Ark, and the singers, and Chenaniah, the leader of the music of the singers. And David wore a linen ephod, so all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. And as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David... Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David dancing and celebrating, and she despised him in her heart. And I almost wish that last phrase wasn't there, because that's not what I want to talk about. But very often, that seems to be where we are sometimes. Can you imagine a worship service where people were shouting and celebrating and rejoicing? How many of us would think, something's 
not right. Or when you envision what it looked like bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, if you hadn't read that, if we hadn't just read that, what would have been your vision? Would you have seen some solemn procession and ceremony where they're marching slowly and carefully, especially after what had happened the first time they tried to bring the ark up? But they're dancing and they're singing and they're celebrating and they're shouting. It's a, it's a rambunctious sort of event. Celebration is a big part of what we see in the scriptures. When Israel crosses the Red Sea on dry land, after they've been so afraid and God parts the waters and they come across and then the waters close up over the Egyptians, the very next thing they do, it says, is they stop and the whole congregation of Israel in Exodus chapter 14 and 15, they sing a song, praising God, rejoicing because of the salvation that he had brought. Countless psalms contain the line, rejoice in the Lord. I read this morning Psalms 100 where it says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all ye peoples. And just for, I'm just going to go through them very quickly. Psalm 32 verse 11, this isn't all of them. Psalm 32 verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 35 verse 9, David says, then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. Psalm 40 Verse 16, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Psalm 64, verse 10, let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let the upright in heart exult. Psalm 97, verse 1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Psalm 105, verse, there's no way you can turn to these. Psalm 105, verse 3, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Psalm 118, verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love towards us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Just over and over you see that. If you read through the prophets, if you read through Kings, if you read through First and Second Samuel, if you read through Exodus, if you read through, there's rejoicing, there's celebration over and over happening in praise of God, in thanks to God, and in honor to God. It doesn't change. As we come into the New Testament, we see the early Christians rejoicing over a number of things. And, and again, I didn't pick all of them, but here's just a handful. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul has preached the gospel to the Philippian jailer, and he and his household are saved, verse 32 of Acts 16, it says, They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so as salvation came to his house, well, understandably, there's rejoicing and celebration there. In Second John and in Third John, John begins both of those letters with rejoicing. Notice Second John Verse 4, there's only one chapter. Second John, verse 4, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, 
just as we were commanded by the Father. Again, in 3 John, verse 3, I rejoiced greatly. When the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. So at salvation, at hearing that others are doing well and continuing firmly in the faith, there's joy there. Here's one that's a little bit different in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, what has happened there is the disciples have been arrested, they've been threatened, and then they've been beaten. Verse 40 says, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So having been arrested and having received some physical abuse, verse 41 says, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus, that the Christ is Jesus. And we've talked about that before and you wouldn't do that, would you? Having been arrested and received, maybe you'd stumble away. Maybe you'd be a little angry. <laughs> maybe you'd be a little upset or frustrated. Can you imagine walking away from that just thrilled and rejoicing and celebrating that you had been counted worthy to pay this price to serve God? So even in the midst of suffering, they rejoiced. In Acts chapter 13, the Gentiles rejoiced that the gospel had come to them. And if you look at about verse 52, even as persecution comes upon them, they continue to rejoice in that. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says he was rejoicing to see their good order in Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6, as Paul recounts how the Thessalonians had received the gospel, he says, you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. You can't escape the idea or the concept of joy, rejoicing, and celebration, Old and New Testament. And so as you look at that, and if you look at it carefully, I think you'll see the same thing. Over and over you find it in all kinds of circumstances. So then how then did Christians sometimes get the reputation for being sour and glum and unhappy people? Why do we struggle so much to live joyfully sometimes? Sometimes instead of being joyful, we're worried. Sometimes we're angry. Sometimes we're bitter. Sometimes we're filled with doubt. Sometimes we're anxious. And to find someone, even in the church, that just seems to have an irrepressible joy about them. We notice that, don't we? Why do we notice that? Because it's so unusual. And yet, as I look in the scriptures, that should be normal. <laughs> one who is not rejoicing, one who is upset, one who is sad, one who can't be sad, that should be what's rare in the church. That exuberant, joyful idea is what is presented in the Bible as being something that's rather common. Why is it that it's so hard for us to live joyfully at times? I'd like to mention maybe five or, or six things that might get in the way of our joy even though we see that as being the ideal in the scriptures and the default and what God offers to us, sometimes we're unable to rejoice and live joyfully and celebrate in our life just because we worry too much. There's so much that we're anxious about, so much that we're bothered by, so many things that are uncertain to us, and we spend so much time dwelling on those things that we can't really appreciate or be happy. And the Lord addresses that in Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus has laid down a marker for us. He says, you don't have to worry. The reason you don't have to worry is because God cares for you. Verse 32, God knows all those things. He knows that you need food. He knows that you need clothes. He knows that you need things to drink. But don't worry about it. The Father knows that you need those things. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things, he says, will be added to you. Don't worry. Follow me, and I'll give you what you need. That puts us in kind of an awkward position as Christians. Because by saying what he said, if we continue to worry, what we're saying is, Lord, we don't believe you. We don't trust you. And we don't believe you're going to do what you said. So worry winds up being really a lack of faith in the Lord. He says, don't fret. Paul continues that theme in Philippians chapter 4. Starting in verse 4. Philippians 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's the same message, really, as what Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 6. But notice he begins it, don't worry, but rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, verse 4. Again, I will say rejoice, verse 6 then. Don't be anxious about anything because you can't rejoice. You can't live with joy if you're living with worry. So he says, don't be anxious. But instead, pray about everything with thanksgiving. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And there's the promise, verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I'm afraid maybe we read that and we wonder how can that be because I've prayed and I'm still anxious. I've prayed and I don't have peace. Why? 
Well, it goes back to that promise in Matthew chapter 6. If you trust the Lord and you pray about it, then you don't have to worry about it anymore. However he answers it, do you believe that the Lord is good? Do you believe that the Lord will provide what you need? Do you trust his promises? Then anytime you're worried about something, you pray to him about it, and then it's in his hands. I know it sounds simplistic, but that's what he says. Don't worry, Paul says, rejoice. Don't be anxious, Jesus says. Your father knows what you need. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Sometimes we don't live joyfully, and we can't live joyfully because we're too busy worrying about things that are under God's control and not under our control. The second thing that can keep us from living joyfully, and I think it's tied to worry, is that very often we fail to rejoice and we fail to recognize God's blessings because we focus too much on here instead of on heaven. When we think about the descriptions of heaven, the magnificent descriptions at the end of the book of Revelation that it's a place of no pain and no sorrow and no tears, all those former things have passed away, there's no more death there. We think about the streets that are laden with gold. We think about Jesus' description, I think in John chapter 14, where he talks about in my father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. And, and just last week, I heard a friend of mine preaching on that subject. Another way for that to read in John 14, rather than many mansions, is there are many rooms. And whether it's mansions or rooms, uh, the person that I heard preach about it is, is a man that I met uh, years ago in Russia. He now lives in the United States. Uh, his name is Manfred Agbor. Uh, he's the original, well, not the original, but he's a prodigal son. He, he ran away and rejected everything of his parents and his family and but now he's obtained, I think, the blessings of God. He's found what he was looking for. But as he talked about this idea, he talked about a trip he took back to Africa. That's where he's from. He was a prince in Cameroon. And he and my brother went back to Cameroon to preach. And as they were going, he said, every place we stayed was in a house that belonged to his mother. Because you know, she had many mansions. In my father's house are many mansions. And every place that he went, it's not like they were building a fresh place for him, but every place he went, there was a room made for him in his mother's house. And now I've, I've forgotten whether it was my brother or whether it was Manfred that was talking about that, but either one of them, uh, that's the idea there. He has a place for us in his own house is the idea that Jesus is talking about in John chapter 14. So if we dwell on that and think about that, the inheritance that we're about to receive and then we look around at where we live and how we live sometime. Well, my health is failing. Well, I've got problems with my family. I don't get along with my husband or I don't get along with my wife. I'm not as rich as the guy next door. My car's getting old. It's falling apart. And we focus on the here and now types of things, the things that Jesus says, those things are going to wear out. Those things are going to perish with using. Those things don't matter. But you've got an eternal existence in glory, waiting for you, why then can't we rejoice? Because we're too busy looking at these things that perish here and now that we can't see it. In the scriptures, we see a different perspective being given to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul doesn't ignore the affliction. And here we're not talking about just a little bit of lack. We're talking about real hardship and persecution that they're going through. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 4,
verse 16. He says, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. There's the acknowledgement. That's what happens. Things waste away. We get old, we die, we hurt. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our, is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Yes, we're being afflicted. Yes, our outer self is wasting away. Yes, this life is not a thing to be grasped. But as we look to those things that are unseen, those things that are eternal, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Romans chapter 8. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. How much time in your day do you spend thinking about the glory that is to be revealed? The eternal way of glory, where you're going, what you hope to receive. <clears throat> as Paul says, as I think about that, whatever I'm going through right now isn't even worth comparing to that. It's not even worth thinking about. <clears throat> Excuse me. Second Corinthians is just light, momentary affliction that I'm enduring. In Colossians chapter 3, the apostle gives us the remedy if we'll just do it. If the reason we're not joyful is we're so busy looking at what we don't have here or what we're going through here. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. <clears throat> set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If we focus on heaven, it gets easier to live joyfully and hopefully. So sometimes our joy is lost because we worry too much. Sometimes our joy is lost because we focus too much on here instead of on heaven. Sometimes our joy is lost because we're too worldly. We're too fleshly minded. As you continue there in Colossians chapter 3, as he talks about appearing with him in glory, verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Well, if the joy is before you and you see what's promised and you set your mind on that, is it hard to let go of those things? It shouldn't be, but frankly, I admit for most of us, it probably is hard. Maybe not all of those things, but there are some things in that list 
that we have our own struggles with. Sometimes we can't live joyfully as Christians because giving up the lust of the flesh is not a joy to us. Rather, it's a burden because we still want it. We haven't given up on it. We haven't put it to death. We haven't seen ourselves as eternal creatures. And so then we've got a problem. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is discussing with the church there an appalling sort of immorality that's going on among them. First Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, he says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, as if present. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man for, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are leavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I know you've looked at that passage often and read through it. Have you ever spent much time looking at verse 8, verses 7 and 8 in particular, as Paul makes his argument that it's not good to boast in these things. It's not good to be arrogant about these things. It's not good to persist in these things and have this kind of influence going on in the church. Well, why? Because of the influence of leaven, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now it's time to celebrate. There's our word. It's time to have a feast. It's time to rejoice. And you cannot celebrate the Passover, he says, with the old leaven of malice and evil. You can't enter the joy of the Lord and hang on to wickedness. But we try to. And then we wonder why we're not receiving the joy of the Lord. James chapter 4, and James is talking to Christians. He addresses the same thing. What causes quarrels, verse 1? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Joy is the ideal. That's what the Lord is trying to give us. But instead, James says, you've got quarrels. You've got fights. You've got problems, which is not joy. <laughs> And he says, what causes that? It's your passions that are at war within you. It's your desire for fleshly things. It's your wishing to be a friend of the world and trying to grasp both things at once. And he says, you can't do it. If you want to obtain the joys of the world and the joys of the Lord, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be dissatisfied. 
it's going to be impossible to live a life of celebration. So sometimes our joy is ruined because we still want to hang on to the things of the flesh when the Lord has told us to cast those things aside. Fourth way that we can lose our joy. And these are all a little bit different, you see. Sometimes we worry. Sometimes we're focused too much on the here and now. Sometimes we love here and now too much. If we turn the opposite way, sometimes our joy is lost even as we're seeking heaven and we're seeking the joy of the Lord and we're seeking eternal life and maybe we really are trying to get rid of those other things we've already talked about. Sometimes our joy is lost because we lean discouragingly on our own righteousness more than we trust the grace of God. I want to go to heaven so bad. I don't want to make any mistakes. I don't want to commit sin. I don't want to be surprised at the end to find that my name's not in the book. And I'm so worried that I might do something wrong. And so I walk around every day thinking, <laughs> I'm just on the razor's edge between being lost. Am I good enough? I know I'm not good enough. Does it describe anybody but me? Or am I just being too honest? And Paul talks about that, doesn't he, in Romans chapter 7, that dilemma of trying to just take hold of yourself and make yourself good enough and right enough so that you can deserve to go to heaven. Romans chapter 7. Starting about verse 14. He says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There's a lot of theology packed into those verses. There's a lot of things that are maybe hard to understand. But do you see the dilemma? Do you feel the dilemma? Have you ever been there? I know what's right. I want to do what's right. I like what's right. At least I think I do. <laughs> but then I find myself in the circumstances of life, in the moment, and I do something that I look back and I just hate it. And I want so bad to be good. I want so bad to be perfect. I want to be able to strut with confidence into the gates of heaven. And day after day after day after day, I find myself not measuring up. How could I possibly be happy? How could I possibly live with joy? And even as Paul describes that, he says, wretched man that I am, as I try to live this way, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What do you depend on for your salvation? Depend on your own goodness, your own righteousness? It's a recipe for discouragement. 
for frustration? Do you depend on the goodness and the power of the love and grace of God? Just back up a chapter and Paul says this is not a license to sin. That's not what we're talking about in chapter 6, verse 1. But it is a license to relax just a little bit. It's not you that's perfect that enables you to go to heaven. It's the perfection of the love of God embodied in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's his love for you. It's his grace towards you that knows no bounds and cannot be overcome. And he is able to make you stand, Romans chapter 14. He is able to make you worthy. He is able to save to the uttermost. But if I forget that and think it all depends on me, then I can't live with joy. Not if I'm honest with myself because I know I don't measure up and I'll never measure up. But he does. So sometimes we've lost focus and that's why we lose our joy. I'm running out of time. The fifth one that I wanted to talk about, why don't we have joy? Knowing those promises of the Lord. Knowing the eternal blessing that he has for us. Knowing that he says we'll have everything we need in this life, if not everything that we want. Why don't we have joy? Sometimes, in the worst case, it's because we know that we are living in rebellion to God. And so then that thin veneer of religion brings no comfort at all to us. We read those promises and we know that they're not mine because I am not submitting to God. I am not seeking the kingdom of heaven first. And in my heart, I know it. So just coming to church and hearing a sermon doesn't comfort me. Instead, it terrifies me. And we think about verses. Romans chapter 14. Starting in verse 10, he says, We'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now those verses are in the midst of several verses that warn us not to judge each other, not look down on each other. But at the same time, he says, the reason we don't need to judge each other is God's going to judge all of us. We're all going to give an account to God. And it doesn't matter what any human being thought of me. It doesn't matter what any group of human beings thought of me. All that's going to matter in the end is what God thinks. Well, that's not a comfort if I know I'm a rebel to God. But I'm deliberately turning aside from his will. In Hebrews chapter 10, Beginning in verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately or willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
there's a difference, isn't there, between Romans 7, wanting to do right and finding yourself doing wrong and sinning deliberately and willfully. There's a difference. How many times have you said, I know it's wrong. I know I shouldn't, but I'm doing it. If that's where you are, then you're a rebel against God. All the hopes, all of the promises, all of the joy is not yours. Instead, there's this fearful expectation of judgment. So, of course, your joy would be lost. Well, what's the solution then? To repent and to turn. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. However far away we've gotten, however badly we've fallen, it's not irredeemable. It's not hopeless. Because the love of God is that overwhelming that if we'll just confess and turn, then we'll be restored. Those are some reasons, though. The sixth one that I thought about mentioning as far as reasons we lose our joy we worry too much. We focus too much on here. We love here too much. We lean on our own righteousness instead of on God's. We rebel against God. And then sometimes we neglect our fellowship with one another. In the New Testament in particular, joy is often associated with love. When Jesus talks about leaving his joy with us, that's where he talks about, and my command is, that you love one another. The more we isolate ourselves from each other, the less help we have, the less encouragement we have, the less strength we have to draw upon. And so sometimes it's by neglecting our fellowship with one another that we lose our joy. But we need to remember that the Lord's intention is that we live lives celebrating, lives rejoicing, lives filled with joy. In John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. In John chapter 15, verse 11, he says, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That's what he desires for us. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, the first fruit of the Spirit that's given is joy. So if our joy is lacking because we're worried, we need to trust Him more. If our joy is lacking because we're focused too much on here instead of heaven, we need to change our mindset. If we love the world, we need to give that up. Quit leaning on ourselves. Turn away from our rebellion to God. And we can obtain this peace and joy and we can live a delighted life no matter what the circumstances, knowing where we're going. I'm going to turn your psalm books to number 347.